We open in the scripture this evening to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, and if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. And the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. I want to skip ahead there. You recognize verse 21 and 27, a parallel, and there's six of these parallels in the last part of this chapter. Verse 21, thou shalt, ye have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill. 27, ye have heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then we skip to verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths, but I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, and so on. Then verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, 
that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then again, verse 44, ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, and so on. The text for the sermon this evening is verses 17 through 20, where Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want in the introduction this evening, beloved, to point to two things. First, the importance of these words. These are central to the Sermon on the Mount. They are, we might say, the theme verses of everything that Jesus says, at least in all of chapter 5 and most of chapter 6. We've already seen in the beginning of chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, that the Christian is defined not by external conduct, but by spiritual character, as Jesus describes the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is really pointing to in verse 20, when he says, Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, their externalism. And certainly you see that it's central as you look at the rest of the chapter in the contrast that Jesus makes. Ye have heard, but I say unto you. He gives six examples that really apply the truth that we'll be looking at in the text this evening. Apply the truth of the Christian's relationship to the law of God. It is not merely external, but the application of the law goes much deeper than that. And again, into chapter 6, Jesus speaks of those who do things to be seen of men. They pray, they give alms, they fast, to be seen of men. And Jesus says, when you do those things, enter into your closet and do them before God. So the verses this evening are very important for understanding the Sermon on the Mount, but they're also important from a theological point of view. And what I mean by that is that when Christians come to the law of God, they stumble into one of two ditches, two opposing ideas or errors. On the one hand, there's the error of the Pharisees, which Jesus is addressing here, and that's the error of legalism, of works righteousness, that man achieves or adds to his salvation by his works of obedience to the, to the law. And that, of course, is not just a doctrinal error, but is often reflected in an attitude of pride and superiority that some will have, that we will have sometimes, as we live in obedience 
to the commandments of God. That's the one error. On the other side, there's the error of antinomianism, which says we are saved by grace, and so obedience to the commandments of God doesn't really matter at all. And again, that's a doctrinal error, the error of dispensationalism, but it's a much bigger problem in our generation that resists authority and emphasizes freedom. And again, we can fall into this practically. We wince at the requirements of God's law and of obedience and think something like this. Well, I love God. That's enough, isn't it? And so those are the two errors. And as I pointed them out as theological errors, you see the practical importance of these verses tonight. Here, let's remember that Jesus' audience is not theologians. He's not addressing the Sermon on the Mount to the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, but to his disciples. To his disciples as they live their lives with struggles in their lives that are similar to the struggles of your life and of my life. Family struggles, financial struggles, marital struggles, all these different struggles that we have in our life. And Jesus comes with these words to us tonight. And this instruction, one commentator put it this way, Ignorance of the place of God's law in our lives is at the bottom of almost all our troubles in living the Christian life. Ignorance concerning the place of God's law in our lives is the root of most of the troubles that we have in living the Christian life. And so Jesus is not talking here simply about an irrelevant theological subject, but real life, real life for the Christian, and how we relate in that to the law of God. We need law and order in our lives. Just think about that in society. Think about the street out here not having any rules and people coming down here at 90 miles an hour, no one stopping at stop signs. Well, think about all the property that you own and imagine that there were no property laws and everybody was free to do with your property as they pleased. And we need law and order. That's true in the Christian life too. We need structure. There is a biblical structure for Christian living. And that's the importance now of the law for God's people. And so as we look at these verses and then follow through in the rest of the chapter with their application in six different circumstances that Jesus brings up, we must understand the importance of what Jesus is teaching us here tonight. The law has a place in the life of the believing child of God. There's one other thing I want to point out in the introduction, and it's this, that the main emphasis of Jesus in his teaching here, especially in verse 20 when he mentions righteousness, the main emphasis of Jesus' teaching is not justification. He's talking here about holy living. The word righteousness in Scripture we can understand as referring to godliness, as referring to how our lives are in comparison to the commandments of God, the law of God. 
He's talking here about uprightness of living primarily. Now, that's not to say that we don't need another righteousness. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is full and complete. But Jesus is speaking here especially of holiness, righteous living. And he's saying, your standards for godliness must be much higher than the way that the Pharisees understood and applied the law of God. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So tonight let's consider Jesus' instruction concerning the law. Notice first the occasion for it, second the instruction that he gives, and then third the application for us. There are two things I want to say about the occasion for this instruction. The first is that Jesus gives this instruction to his disciples in the context of legalism, in the context of legalism, especially the legalism of the Pharisees. He mentions them here by name. This is very early in Jesus' ministry, before any real strong confrontations with the Pharisees. But Jesus has observed the Pharisees, and he wants to give his disciples instruction concerning the Pharisees, so that they will be discerning. What he says here must have been shocking to the disciples. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What Jesus says is shocking, not only because he's challenging the religious leaders of the day, but because these religious leaders, especially the Pharisees now, were considered to be the most righteous, that they had a, a righteousness to which it would be impossible to attain. It was said, this was a proverb in those days, that if only two people went to heaven, one would be a Pharisee and the other would be a scribe. They were scrupulous in their interpretation, in their applications, and in their obedience to commandments. They, in fact, had 613 commandments. 613, we could say, extrapolations from the Old Testament laws. These included laws for Sabbath observance, how far you could walk, what you could and couldn't lift on a Sabbath day, what you could and couldn't eat or cook on a Sabbath day. They had laws about hand washing and ceremonial cleanliness. And they not only kept these themselves with, with scrupulosity, but they imposed them on everybody else. It's in that context that Jesus says these words. He's addressing legalism. So what is legalism? Well, there's four ways for us to, to realize that legalism expresses itself. First of all, in the strict sense, legalism is the teaching that salvation is by works, that your obedience is the way 
for you to obtain and earn salvation. By definition, that's legalism. But legalism comes to expression in these other ways as well. Legalism is the addition of man-made rules and traditions to the requirements of God's Word. That's legalism because in the end it undermines the authority of God's Word and sets up another authority next to or even above the Word of God. And that, that leads to another expression of legalism which puts the emphasis on lesser matters, the fine details, we might say, of the letter of the law while ignoring the things that really matter, that really are important in the commandments of God. And then fourth, legalism is having the wrong attitude towards obedience. We might say having a grudging obedience, obeying because you're compelled to do so, and missing altogether the proper motives for obedience. And so in Luke 15 verse 29, in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus says that the older brother says this, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments. He was concerned that he was keeping his father's law perfectly. And now he thought that his father owed him something for it. Wrong motives. Now it's fair to say that the Pharisees were infected with all those forms of legalism. They trusted themselves that they were righteous. They went about to establish their own righteousness. Those are phrases from the New Testament. They set aside, their, uh, they set aside the commandments of God for the traditions of men. Again, Jesus says that about them. They ignored the weightier matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness for their requirements. So they were concerned about the little things. And their motive was never God's glory, never gratitude to God, but they, as Jesus points out in the next chapter, did their alms and made their prayers and fasted to be seen of men. It was purely external. And it's in that context that Jesus now gives his disciples instruction concerning the law. And he does that because they, and we too, are easily drawn into Phariseeistic thinking with regard to the law and practices that, become, that are traditions of men. And while we certainly deny that we earn salvation, that salvation is by our works, we can put an emphasis on externals, we can be busy checking boxes, we can be busy living before men, setting up our own practices and traditions as law, and doing that, considering ourselves better, having a pride in our godliness. And any time we have this attitude of spiritual superiority rising in our heart, that's the the spirit of Phariseeism. And that's really the, going to be the entire practical importance of what follows in the Sermon on the Mount in this, the rest of this chapter and going on also into chapter 6. So it's important that we see that here. Jesus does this in the context of legalism. Then there's another thing that I 
want us to see about the occasion for this, and it's this, that as Jesus begins to give instruction concerning Phariseeism and legalism, he anticipates one main objection to what he's saying. And it's this, you destroy the law. That's what he's going to be accused of. You make the law not important in what you teach. And you can see that in the way that he begins his instruction here in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets here refer not just to the law of the Ten Commandments, not even just to the law in the books of Moses, the Torah, which contains the ceremonial and the civil laws besides the moral law, but law and prophets refers to the whole of the Old Testament. And what they're saying here is that Jesus is against the Old Testament. Jesus is against Moses. Jesus is against the requirements of the Word of God. And he's viewed as a revolutionary. And certainly that comes out in the interactions of the scribes and the Pharisees with Jesus in his ministry. And I'll just point to a few examples of that. In the Gospel of Mark, chapters 2 and 3, there are five consecutive confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. That's Mark 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And now listen to, listen to them in Mark chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus has come to the house of Levi, who is called to be one of his disciples, who was a tax collector. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? There's an accusation here. He's doing something that's forbidden. Again in verse 18, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Again, an accusation. There's a requirement to fast, and your disciples aren't following it. Again in verse 24, the disciples have walked through the field and they're hungry and they've taken plucked ears of corn to eat them. And the Pharisees said to him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? So again and again they're coming with this accusation to Jesus. You're abolishing the law and the prophets. You're against Moses and you're against the Old Testament. Why did they say this about him? Well, first, because Jesus did, in fact, violate their Jewish traditions. He did. And from that point of view, he was a revolutionary. He didn't violate the law, but he violated what they considered to be the law. Plucking ears of corn was forbidden. You're required to wash your hands before you ate. You had to fast three times a week or whatever it was. But none of these, you can search the entire Old Testament Scripture, none of these are actually requirements in the Old Testament Scripture, but they were, they were set up by the Jewish leaders and made to be requirements of religious 
piety. The other reason that they would say this to Jesus, you've come to destroy the law, is the authority with which Jesus speaks. The authority with which Jesus speaks. He wasn't just challenging the leaders of his day, but he was challenging an entire tradition. That's the point in the rest of Matthew chapter 5 when he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. One of the common misunderstandings of that contrast is that it was said in the Old Testament, but now Jesus is saying something different in the New Testament. That's not the case at all. And that would be contrary to the words of the text. I'm not come to destroy the law and the prophets. That's not the idea. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, he's referring to the tradition, the long tradition of the teachers, the Jewish teachers of the law. And in their Talmud, which was their books of legal interpretation of the Old Testament, they had extrapolated all these different laws and implications of the laws, what you could and what you couldn't do. And Jesus speaks with authority against that rabbinical tradition. And they, of course, took that not only as a personal attack, but they took that as he's come to overthrow the rabbinical tradition. And that's, that was their, we might say, their sacred cow. How dare he? And so they would accuse him of being against the law and the prophets. So that's the context, a legalistic tradition and an accusation that's going to come against Jesus. You're against the Old Testament Scriptures, and you're against the law of Moses. It's in that context that Jesus gives this instruction in verses 17 through 20, and I, I think there are basically two things here that he teaches, and we, we, we want really to see them simply, not to complicate what he's saying here. First, Jesus teaches the permanence of the law. And not just the permanence of the law, but the permanence of the Word of God. When he refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring to all of the Scriptures, all of the Word of God. And he takes that general principle concerning all of the Word of God, and he means to apply it specifically to the law of God. He emphasizes this. He, he, he teaches this in the strongest terms. Notice this in verse 17. Think not. Really, do not think or stop thinking. Stop thinking that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. And again in verse 18, For verily I say unto you, or truly, or in the, word, in, in the English it's the word amen, for amen. I say unto you. So he speaks this in the, in the strongest terms to correct their misconception. I am not against the law. I am not against the Scriptures. I am come to, to, to be a continuer of the law and to affirm everything that's in the Old Testament Scriptures. And Jesus makes a very strong statement here concerning the 
permanence and the authority of the Word of God. In verse 18, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. The jot and the tittle refer to the smallest points that the scribe would make as he was writing down, copying the Word of God from one scroll to another. The jot would be a a tiny dot, which was a vowel point. The tittle would be a little stroke of the pen that would, would change a letter from one to another. So, for example, we have the letter C, but if you put a little stroke across there, it becomes the letter E. And Jesus is saying here, not one jot, not one tittle. He's teaching the verbal inspiration of the Word of God. Every word breathed out from the mouth of God, important, permanent, authoritative, And he compares the permanence of the Scripture here to the heavens and the earth. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Heaven and earth. From creation's perspective, there's nothing more permanent than the heavens and the earth. He's talking here about the end. We sometimes refer to something this way. It's as old as the hills. And Jesus is saying here that the Word of God is as permanent as this universe. Something even more permanent. You you think of Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever earth received its form from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. It's a similar comparison. And the, compa- the point of that comparison is heaven and earth will pass, but God is everlasting. God is eternal, and He will not fade. He does not change. And really, that's what Jesus is saying here. Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's Word will not pass away. God's Word is permanent and still even in heaven. There's a permanence to the law of God. And that's because the word of the, the word and the law of God reflect the character of God himself. That's so important today because we live in a day and age where God's word and the authority of scripture and the permanence of the word of God are undermined, especially now in our society we see it in areas of morality. And it's important for us to see here tonight that though Jesus is making here a general principle about the Scriptures, the application is specific to the law. God's law doesn't change. Jesus is not come to abolish, to destroy, to abrogate, to change, to come with something other than the law of God. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled, until heaven and earth pass away. So he's not lowering the strict requirements of the law of God. That's his point here. Then the second thing that Jesus teaches here is that he came to fulfill the law. First, the law is permanent. And then second, he has come to 
fulfill the law. And again, you see that in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And again at the end of verse 18, till all be fulfilled. Now that's true again in a broader sense that all of the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ceremonies of the Old Testament have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The civil and the judicial laws that belong to the existence of Israel as a nation are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of them always were about Him. In some way or another, they looked ahead to the Messiah and the coming of the Christ. And He's the fulfillment of them. The fulfillment of the priesthood. The fulfillment of the sacrifices. The fulfillment of the ceremonies and the, priest and, and the feast days. The fulfillment of the sacrifices. The Lamb. The meaning and the purpose of all those types in the Old Testament was Christ Himself. And they could not be understood apart from Christ. You have only to read the epistle to the Hebrews to see this. Christ is the better sacrifice, the better priest. He's entered into a better tabernacle, not made with hands. He's the fulfillment, the reality that those things pointed ahead to. And yet the substance of them and the meaning of them remains. And that's the point. In Belgic Confession, Article 25, it's put this way, even though the ceremonies and figures of the law ceased with the coming of Christ, and now I quote, yet the truth and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have their completion. And you see here a beautiful uh, harmony between the Old and the New Testament Scriptures, and that we are able to understand the types and the shadows in beautiful ways as we see them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just go read Leviticus chapter 16 about the great day of atonement and the high priest who lays his head on a ram and speaks unto it the sins of the people, and they lead it out into the wilderness where it's lost. And then he comes into the tabernacle with the names of the people of God on an ephod on his shoulders. One stone for each of the tribes. And then offers incense before God. Brings the people into the presence of God. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, well, all of that is fulfilled in Christ who's gone through His flesh behind the veil. So that now we have access through Him to God. Beautiful pictures that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they help us, in a sense, to understand the work of Christ as they looked ahead to it. And the fulfillment of them helps us to, to understand the meaning of those Old Testament figures. And so Jesus says to his Jewish audience in John 5, verse 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And when he was walking on the Emmaus road with the travelers on the day of his resurrection, he opened to them the Scriptures and showed to them from the law and the prophets that Christ must needs suffer and that he was the fulfillment of all those types and those shadows. But now, Jesus is referring here especially to the commandments. 
I distinguish three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. The ceremonial laws, which belong to the types and the shadows, the priests and the sacrifices and so on. The civil laws that belong to the existence of Israel as a nation, a theocracy with God as their king. And then the moral laws, which are contained especially in the Ten Commandments. And that's clear from verse 19. When Jesus says, whosoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall teach men to do so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall do and teach them, that is, these commandments, shall be great in the kingdom. And then in the six applications that follow, Jesus is talking about different commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And so on. And so when Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he means especially that the law of the Ten Commandments has its fulfillment in him. But its fulfillment in him does not mean that he destroys it, or that he abrogates it, or that he changes it, or that he replaces it, or that he lowers the standards of it in any way. So how does Jesus fulfill the moral law? Well, first of all, he fulfills the demands of the moral law perfectly. He gives perfect obedience to the commandments of God. He obeys not just the letter of the law or the external requirements of the law, but he loves to obey, and he loves the God whom he obeys. He says in Psalm 40, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Thy law is written in my heart. And that means not only this, that he came to obey God's purpose, that he would be the one who in obedience to the Father would suffer for the sins, that he did that willingly. But it means this, he came with that same obedience and resolve to obey every one of the commandments of God perfectly. And so when he's going to the cross in John 14, verse 30, he proclaims his innocence this way. The prince of this world has nothing in me. Has nothing in me. He means that Satan has no legal claim on him. That he deserves no punishment for sin because he's kept the law of God perfectly. He can be charged with nothing. That's what he means when he says, I come to fulfill the law, to keep it perfectly. And of course, that's important for him uh, being our Savior, going to the cross, we know. And, and, and this is proclaimed also in Pontius Pilate, declaring him innocent. We know that he was innocently condemned. And his condemnation was not his sin, but ours laid on him. So first, he fulfills the law that way. Then second, he fulfills the law in this way that he bears the weight and the curse of the law and the wrath of God, which is in that law, against man. What is curse? The curse is God's promise of death to all who disobey. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the things written in the book of the law to do them. 
disobey, and you'll die. You're worthy of death. And that's what man deserves for his disobedience. And when Christ came, he didn't come to to annul that law, to remove the justice of God, to say, no, that's not required anymore. There isn't any more payment for sin that's necessary. But he came and he was made under the law and he was made sin for us and he bore the penalty of the law and he bore the curse of the wrath of God and the weight of God's wrath on himself. He didn't deserve it. But in his innocence, he carried it, fulfilled it, and paid it. And now you see why he says, I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law. No, the law, in its judgment and penalty, is carried out to its fullness against him. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. But then there's a third way that he fulfills the law, and that is that he forms a people by grace who are able to obey, I'll say, the deeper requirements of the law that the Pharisees missed altogether. He maintains all the requirements of the law for us to follow. And here it's important for us to understand what the Bible means when it says you're not under the law, but under grace. It means this, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, because Christ has carried the the condemnation of the law for us. But being under grace does not mean this, that the law no longer applies. Rather, it means this, that now by grace, our relationship to the law has changed. And we love the law, and we delight in the law, and we want to obey the law, and we're enabled by the grace of God to obey the law from the heart. In a way that the Pharisees, again, missed altogether. And so, he works in us to will and do of his good pleasure. He makes for himself a people who are zealous of God's work, of of good works. He creates a people who delight in the law, who love the law, who meditate in the law day and night, who say such treasure no gold can supply, such sweetness no honey afford. They delight in obedience. And now that's the first point of application And that's the point that Jesus is making in verse 19. His kingdom people will take the law seriously. They won't teach that godliness really doesn't matter. They won't teach that the only thing that matters is that you know truth and sincerity in godliness is unimportant. They won't treat teach this, that we're justified and so we have a righteousness in Christ so our obedience to the Lord doesn't matter. They won't teach that we're saved by grace and so we can live as we please. No, they'll take the law seriously. Again, verse 19. Jesus speaks of the least and the greatest in the kingdom. 
And what he means by that is the weakest and the strongest from a spiritual point of view. The least in the kingdom are the spiritually weak. The greatest in the kingdom are the spiritually strong. And Jesus describes for us here spiritual weakness and spiritual strength. The least in the kingdom are not those who live in the kingdom or live in the church and go unnoticed. They don't have positions of prominence or influence. But the least are those who take the commandments of God and loosen them and teach others to do the same. Who take the small commandments of the law of God and say, it's okay. These sins are respectable. You can do them and get away with them. That, Jesus says, is spiritual weakness. They emphasize truth, but they don't address matters of godliness. Those are the weak and the least. The great in the kingdom are not those in the church with position and popularity and influence and intellect and leadership, but the great in the kingdom are those who take God's Word as God's Word and take God's Word seriously, who, Psalm 1, delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night, who are concerned that their own holiness be a reflection of the holiness of God, that their lives be lived to the honor and the glory of God. They're concerned about their words. They're concerned about their thoughts. They're concerned about their conduct. They're careful and intentional in obedience. And that kind of insistence on godliness is not the same as legalism. very interesting. One of the commentators pointed this out, and I think it's very important that we see this tonight. Jesus never said of the Pharisees that they took the law too seriously. Jesus never said of the Pharisees that they took the law too seriously, or that they cared too much about obedience. We won't find that in Jesus' critique of the Pharisees anyway. Their problem is not a desire to obey, but their problem was this, what they obeyed and why they obeyed. That was their problem. In the end, they really weren't concerned about the law of God at all. Listen to what Jesus says about them in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 and 9 and 13. Mark chapter 7, laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. Did they care about the commandments of God? No, they laid them aside and they said these things are important. Washing pots and washing hands and all these ceremonies and these traditions. And so he says, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own traditions. And then in verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. So it wasn't that they were over-concerned about the law and obedience. It was that they 
displaced it with their own requirements. Here's the problem with the Pharisees. They were only partial law keepers, partial law keepers. They paid attention to insignificant details while ignoring the spirit of the whole law. They tithed mint and aloes and precious gifts, but they ignored mercy and justice. They said, these are the externals. These are the things that we can do. These are the things that will get recognition. And they didn't really worry about the spirit of the law. Then second, they were external keepers of the law. First, they were partial keepers of the law. Then also, they were external keepers of the law. That is, they put on a good show. They were, as Paul says concerning himself, touching the law, blameless. You couldn't find any way in which they broke their 613 commandments. But they were simply externalists. There was no obedience from the heart. They did it to be seen of men. And that's the third thing. They were men-pleasers. They looked for applause. They lived comparatively. I do a better job of obedience than so-and-so across the street. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, says to them, Woe to you, God's judgment on you. He says, You are like tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but are full of dead men's bones. You're like dishes that are clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. You appear righteous to men, he says, but you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It was simply external. And they were proud of their law-keeping. They were thankful for their own level of understanding and their own holiness. Just think of Luke 18 and the Pharisee who went up to pray. Lord, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men. These are the things that I do. And I'm sure glad I'm not like this fellow. They were proud of it. They were thankful for it. And then they felt sorry for people who didn't have it together like they did. And in the end... They were proud in their law-keeping. They trusted their own law-keeping. Romans 9, Paul says, they went about to establish their own righteousness. That's Romans chapter 10. Accept your righteousness. Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. I want to say two things about that. The first is this, that the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ, which is the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, supersedes, exceeds, is altogether a different kind of righteousness than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Theirs was by law-keeping. They thought that by law-keeping they could gain the favor of God. They could, in a sense, cancel out their debt. 
That was their theology. Our righteousness is not that. Our acceptance before God, our legal standing before Him, is in no way at all in our works. It is the righteousness of God by faith unto all and upon all who believe. It's a righteousness which is by faith alone. And that is superior to the law-keeping righteousness of the Pharisees because it is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputed, complete, freely given, accomplished. And so we're accepted, believing on Christ. But now, that's not actually the main point that Jesus is making here. Yes, legally there's a righteousness that we have which is altogether different than the righteousness of law-keeping. But Jesus' point here is that your uprightness, your godliness... Your obedience to the law, which you understand now is permanent, not one jot or one tittle can be dismissed. Your righteousness must be superior, completely different in character to the external obedience that the scribes and Pharisees rendered to the law of God. Your obedience must be from the heart. And really what Jesus is saying here is you mustn't try to beat the Pharisees at their game. Their game was to check all the boxes. And Jesus is saying you mustn't try to enter into a competition with them and check a few more boxes than they do so that your righteousness can exceed theirs. No. That kind of obedience is futile. Instead, your obedience must be from the heart, out of love for God. And that's what Jesus is going to emphasize in the six applications that follow. Just take this one for an example. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, it's not about the act. I say unto you, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in her heart. And now Jesus is saying, that's the jot, that's the tittle of the law that shall in no wise pass. God's requirement is much stricter, much deeper than that of the Pharisee. He calls us to obedience to the whole law. Not a compartmentalization of life. Well, in this aspect of my life, it's okay if I break this commandment. Nobody sees it anyway. No, he calls us to complete obedience. He calls us to see that not one little sin can be excused in our lives. Not one jot or one tittle is excusable. He calls us to a willing, 
internal obedience in which we delight in the law of God after the inward man. He calls us to be not men-pleasers, but God-pleasers. Not to live comparatively. He calls us to a humble obedience, not a pride in which we have a, a, a mindset that we are superior on account of what we've done. But a humility. And he calls us to a faith away from what we do. Don't trust in your own righteousness, but trust in Christ alone. We sang Sultan number 40 a little earlier, and that's really what's expressed here. Who can his errors discern? From hidden faults, Lord, keep me free. Let pride never reign in my heart. Then clear from great sin I shall be. I pray that my words and my thoughts may all with thy precepts accord and ever be pleasing to thee, my rock, my redeemer, my Lord. Let me give one example of that. The seventh commandment. Jesus references it here in verse 27. He'll come back to it later in the Sermon on the Mount. The seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What's your position on the seventh commandment? Your position is that marriage is a permanent institution for life. And that marriage cannot be broken and should not be broken. Good. So you believe in the permanent view of marriage. What does God expect? This. Go home. Love your wives. Be faithful in your marriage. Preserve the sanctity of your marriage. That's what the seventh commandment is about. Not just the principle, but about your obedience. And so as we finish tonight thinking about the law and Jesus' instruction here and our relation to it, where's your heart? Is it with the Pharisee and his approach to obedience, Lord? Look what I've done. Or even worse, everybody else. Look what I do. Or is your heart with the followers of Christ who delight in God's law, who want more than anything else to be conformed to the image of God's Son? And to be exalted, not in themselves, but in Christ and in His righteousness and in His sanctifying work so that we may live to Him. May God give us to be followers of Christ and not the Pharisees. Amen. Father, we are thankful for Thy Word. We pray that the things that we've considered tonight will be for our spiritual growth and instruction and that we, under thy word, will mature in the Christian faith 
and in this way bring glory to Thee in our words, in our thoughts, and in our conduct. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.